Welcome to episode four of the History of Metal Blade podcast, brought to you by Vinyl Me Please and Revolver Magazine. I'm your host, Jay Bennett, and today we're looking at two Metal Blade albums from either side of the millennial divide. First, we'll talk with Danish metal legend King Diamond about his 1998 album, Voodoo. This is a highly underrated record from King's solo band, and one of four he released during the 90s. Eight, if you count the four Merciful Fate albums he also released during the same decade. Next, we'll talk with Trevor Sternod, vocalist for the Detroit death metal crew The Black Dahlia Murder, about their 2005 breakout album, Miasma. If you simply look at the album cover, a nighttime photo of Las Vegas, or read the song titles like I'm Charming, Statutory Ape, or Dave Goes to Hollywood, you'd probably have no idea it was a death metal album. But it was, and is, and it proved to be the album that propelled them to underground stardom. But first, check out my conversation with King Diamond. Like most albums from the Danish heavy metal legend solo band, Voodoo is a concept record. This one concerns the events taking place in and around an old house just outside Baton Rouge, Louisiana in 1932. The house is occupied by the troubled Lafayette family and just happens to be next to a Voodoo graveyard. Voodoo is also notable in that it has a guest solo from departed Pantera guitarist, Don Bagdarrell. Here's what King had to say about the album. As you know, we're going to talk about the, the Voodoo album today, which is, you know, came out in 1998. But I think, I mean, I think it holds up fantastically all these years later. Um, how does it hold up for you personally? I had the, like, Voodoo, the title track, uh, it is... Uh, Definitely decent sounding, you know. Uh, Sarah's Night was very decent sounding. The Exorcist had a good sound. Uh, One Down, Two to Go had a good sound. And then there's the the little crazy piece, uh, Clean Spirits, you know, which is, it's only keyboards, there are no guitars in there. So uh, that, that had a different sound to it as well. As with most King Diamond albums, Voodoo was a concept album. And this time you set it in uh, 1932, Louisiana, yeah, what inspired that setting for you? What, why did you want to? Why did you want to take it to that time and that place? Some movies one has seen, you know, the, the voodoo has to be in in New Orleans or Louisiana, you know. Uh, it's it just you know the hot, um, muggy summers, you know, and just the, the feeling of of the chicades and all this stuff going on. It's uh, there's a mood in it, you know, and then you mix it in with with. Uh, Voodoo and uh, rituals and uh, burial grounds and the fact that voodoo is a totally much bigger thing than I ever thought before I started looking into it. You know, a very uh, ignorant look at it I had, you know, until I started reading up on it and I got very surprised to see that it's a proper religion, if you can say that, you know. So many different things involved in it. And so I tried to put a bunch of those real things into what was going on much more realistic than had I just uh, written something about my own, at the time, knowledge about voodoo, you know. There's this big thing in it uh, about uh, tolerating other types of living, types of religion, types of whatever, you know. Just because you feel right about what you uh, like doesn't mean that others like the same things and there's nothing wrong in it. Uh, unless, of course, people get harmed. That's, that's a bad thing, you know. But uh, otherwise, you know, uh, it, it pays off to to open, go into a lot of things with open ears and, and uh, give things a shot. There was a lot of that in this story here where they find out, those people that have bought this mansion, uh, that there is a burial ground 
on their land, you know, and they want it gone. They don't want to encourage it. They hear voodoo drums sometimes at night. Then they just try to shut it down, try to destroy it. It gets, uh, it gets very religious suddenly, you know, and uh, they almost kill each other, all of them, but uh, they don't, but it's, uh, it's very close. But there's something really weird that has come out of it. The weird thing is the butler uh, at, the, at the mansion is dead, you know, through the whole story. You find out at the very end and the afterwards, you know, that, uh, that he said, by the way, uh, my name is Salem. That was the name of the butler, you know, that has been telling most of the story. He's still there. There's a lot of stuff happening in that story, actually. Many different things and many different ways they go about trying to make this family forget to uh, try to, to uh, destroy the, the burial ground where, where they have a lot of their family members uh, buried and, uh, and they are still bringing food to them, you know, and stuff like that. So, I mean, strange families living in weird old houses is sort of a recurring theme for you. You have this going on in Abigail, on the Abigail album, the Them album, which is obviously more autobiographical. But what, what do you think draws you to this idea of families living in weird old houses? Oh, there's a, a nice uh, atmosphere uh, around. Yeah, yeah. So, of course, you know, Dimebag Daryl from Pantera plays a guitar solo on the on the title on the title track on Voodoo. How did that come together and, and what do you think of the, the final result? Oh I love it. I absolutely love it. It was such an experience to see him uh, cut the guitars, you know, and uh, the way he did it, uh, he had worked with Sterling Winfield before, you know. Uh, but I knew them well at that time too. I had barely moved to, to Dallas, uh, Texas, you know, before I had a call from them or somebody that, that worked with them, you know, of it was the New Year's Eve, the first New Year's Eve that I was, that they invited me to, hey, let's, let's go, there's a club, we're going to play down at the club. So I went to, to rehearse with them, and in there and started, we were going to play uh, uh, The Green Man Alishi and The River, the Jewish Priest song, The River, and then the Omens, King Diamond, with just one guitar, you know, it was pretty challenging, actually. And uh, I think we played Omens, then they said, let's go have a beer, man. <laughs> and I said, uh, I think we need to rehearse this stuff, man, I... I have never sung the Green Militia, and uh, I know the river, I've done that before, but uh, no, I'll be fine, man, don't worry, it's all going to be fine. And we ended up going in and drinking some beers. I did have two maybe so I could drive home, you know. That was my rehearsal with them, <laughs> first time, one song, I guess it was. <laughs> and uh, and then we went to the club, and of course I went home and I rehearsed like a maniac because I didn't want to come there and, and screw up. So came to the place there, and it was with makeup and the whole thing, uh, and we did the three songs, and it was perfect. I mean, they, they couldn't have played better, you know. It was awesome. You can still, you can find it on the internet, you know, actually, those two songs from, but that was a uh, cool, so I, I knew them from already there, you know, when we were hanging out. Very, very nice persons, you know, got along very, very well, mutual respect and all that, you know, and uh, then uh, when this came about, you know, it was like, uh, I, I think it was Sterling that said, hey, maybe we can get him to do this, and uh, we asked and he would love to do it, you know, and then he came in, and, and uh, of course there was a uh, some booths uh, presented, you know, and we say, hey, man, it's got to be, we've got to find a name for this stuff. And it turned out to be chicken blood because it was very red what we were drinking and it fit into the voodoo theme pretty well. So so we had some chicken blood there, which was some kind of booze mixed together, you know. And uh, <laughs> that's what you can see. Uh, I think there's a, a note in there somewhere that says, go easy on the chicken blood, you know. Uh, but it's, uh, he was sitting there, he had named for each guitar uh, that was recorded, because the solo has a lot of different guitars on it, special sounds he added to it, you know. And it was, uh, hey, Sterling, I need 
full control with the, the telling Sterling. And could you turn off uh, Google and the Wawa and Ia needs to go down a little bit? I was like, whoa, what's going on here? No, it's just, uh, but he gave them all names. And uh, so that was kind of like the track. He just said that sound. And Sterling used to you work with it. So there's like easy for them to, to keep tabs on it, you know. And uh, the result, I think, is amazing. Just totally cool. And, but to see him do it was, was the most incredible for me to sit there and see him work. The album came out in 1998 on CD, you know, and like a lot of CDs, uh, Voodoo has a hidden track at the end. It's it's It starts at seven. So there's the final track, which is called Aftermath, and then seven minutes of silence. And then there's another song. Eight minutes and 57 seconds you go in, then you start hearing the first sounds. Uh, I heard from, from Livia, my wife, that, that it used to scare the crap out of her because she would maybe have listened to the album and, and, and fallen asleep towards the end or something like that, you know, and uh, and then suddenly waking up because of this stuff going on and it's unclean spirits played backwards. The weird thing is, though, that when you do that, then you hear all the talk that the priest is doing in the song Unclean Spirits. He talks normal and then there's this demon that's talking backwards. So I recorded a bunch of stuff, you know, and then we, we flipped the demons, uh, so it sounded like all these things, you know. So now you suddenly get it at the end where all the music is backwards, the priest is talking backwards, and now you hear what the demon actually says, you know. And it's like things like uh, sticking up your fantasy hole and uh, I piss in your holy water and all these kind of things is in there. That's what the demon is saying backwards. When you, you get a chance if you, if you look for it to uh, to hear what the demon actually is saying there so the uh the cover art for uh voodoo is fantastic and it's done by christian wallen who who also goes by the name necro lord he uh, did has done famous album covers for uh you know dissection and at the gates and he also did the artwork for the merciful fate album dead again that came out in 1998 the same year as voodoo what what drew you to his work during this time period. The artwork is, is killer because you, you get all the, the different characters. It's one of the few times that we have uh, actually drawn up all the characters and going forth and back with them many times. And ah, you maybe a little more this or maybe more that. And uh, he nailed it. I mean, uh, it's so weird that uh, I saw yesterday the priest in there, Father Malone. He looks like the guy that played the priest for, for when we performed Abigail Live. Uh, my my best friend, you know, uh, that that is not here anymore, you know. But uh, he, uh, it looks like him wow. in the clothes. It's really weird. I'm, I looked at it yesterday, like, oh my god, it looks like Ernie, uh, really. And and all those characters have the the right. Uh, it looks correct. All the 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 characters have the right uh, feel, the right uh, look, and all this stuff. So I really like uh, the artwork. It's very very cool, you know. And uh, and and he drew kind of the map into the actual picture you know because when you fold it out you get the the barrel ground down by the by the river as well you know you fold the, the cd cover out you know then you can actually see it's almost like the river continues down there and you can see the, the and, and you get a feeling of where the barrel ground is you know and uh, how much uh, of the house can even be seen down there and uh, that album was was uh, intended to be about something completely different you know and uh, it was about uh, originally uh, the plague but every time i started uh, getting a little deeper into the the, the story writing i felt like i went, went straight back into the same era as uh, the eye 
that album now. Yeah, uh, yeah. And, and I feel like uh, talking about uh, the same thing, and I didn't want to do that, you know. Uh, so, uh, and the song Voodoo was already written at that time, the music part of it, you know. So uh, normally the, the storylines are done before, and I had ideas, but I was working a little bit on both things, uh, same time, both storyline and music. And it ended up that, no, and I even told somebody, yeah, the next album was going to be called The Plague, you know, and never wasn't. And somebody said, hey, so what happened to you? Are you going to do that next instead? Uh, it, it was wrong of me to ever mention it. And I don't do it these days. Now people know that the Institute's going to have the stories done, you know. So uh, it's going to be a two-album story. Uh, the new one. Um, so that that's, but this uh, at that time uh, was one of these things where I, I spoke too soon, I guess, you know, uh, and, and came back to haunt you a little bit, you know, where people say, hey, so what, had you never going to do that, uh, the play? Uh, after I started looking into Voodoo, you know, it just got, I don't know where the interest came for that from, but maybe it was because I was sitting there playing with that song and then I felt there was something missing on it. And then came, I added these, you know, kind of like Tom's, but it's not really Tom's, it's more like voodoo drum. That's probably why it was like, God, I should, I should look into that, see what, 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 if there's anything special there. And then it, it kind of just fit perfect, you know. So but when you hear that start when we played live, I love playing that song live, I mean, absolutely, it sounds killer live, you know. Uh, and uh, it's a lot of fun. Uh, to do and so there you it starts with this it's just like you you were right there Louisiana and uh, out in the woods uh, fires going and there's a bunch of people dancing around and it's about ready to go crazy you know uh, people get possessed by by dead spirits and the spirits from the dead yeah alright so here's the last one for you King um, do you have uh, what's your favorite song on Voodoo and why is it your favorite the title track yeah, absolutely. It it, it 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 just speaks so much uh, to me. I love playing it live, you know, and uh, it's a very visual live, you know, with Jody as, as the possessed uh, girl, you know, in the ritual and uh, uh, the harmonies me and Olivia can do uh, live, you know, and just the uh, interaction with, with Jody on stage too. Uh, it, it just, there's so many different dynamics in that song too, you know, that, that just works, you know, and... Uh, so that, that's, that's, uh, I don't have to think twice about that one. Absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. King, thank you so much for your time, man. It's, it's been a pleasure speaking with you. Always a pleasure talking to you. Yeah, you too, man. Man, it's always great catching up with the King. He's been one of my favorites ever since I visited him at his place in Dallas a few years ago. The same could be said of our next interviewee, Trevor Sternod from the Black Dahlia Murder. I first met him in 2007, when the band had become underground sensations on the strength of their second album, Miasma, which is, coincidentally, the album that we'll be talking with him about today. Let's check it out. So I guess to start this off with Unhallowed comes out in 2003. Miasma comes out like almost exactly two years later, 2005, like summer of 2005. What was that period like coming out of Unhallowed going into Miasma? Do you, what, what do you remember about that period of time for the Black Dahlia murder? This was the first record we were going to do with 
anybody giving a shit about the band. You know what I mean? When we cut the first one, we were still a glorified local band and we were really reaching to play the stuff on the first record physically. You know what I mean? Like we had just like, I think I can do it and then I'll do it later on. You know what I mean? It was kind of like that. I don't know. There was so much mania surrounding the band and, um, we were pumped, honestly, and I think that maybe even our heads were a little bit big around that time just because it was just, there was so much praise thrown at us and we, you know, we'd been on tour with Cannibal Corpse and all this crazy shit happened to us on one record, you know, and it was exciting. It was really exciting making the album. I remember we were in Richmond, Virginia, recording with uh, the dude from Scarlet, Andreas Magnuson. Uh, we befriended Scarlet when we were on tour with uh, Azalea Dying and, and Etid, and Scarlet was opening. That was our first time, like, going to Tracks East, you know, like, going to, like, a real studio that we, like, you know, only read about. And, um, you know, so many albums had come through Tracks East that are classics, you know. You have, like, a lot of East Coast classic records coming through there. Your Dillinger Escape Plans and all that stuff, Lifetime and Saves the Day and all that, that good stuff. Buried Alive, Dead Guy. So, you know, we were really excited. It felt like we could do no wrong. And I think maybe we were wrong a little bit. <laughs> a couple of spots. <laughs> like the, looking back now, the artwork, I remember, um, I initially wrote to um, the ISIS dude. Um, Aaron do, Turner. Yes, Aaron Turner to do the layout. And um, I remember the email I wrote him was just like, Oh, hey, man, will you do this for us? I want it to look like this and this and this and this and this and this and this, as if he had said yes already. You know what I mean? And I never heard back from that. So <laughs> I really wanted Aaron Turner to do the artwork and I wanted it to be like this drunken perspective, you know, of like walking around in Las Vegas, kind of like the idea was to capture the kind of, I don't know, the energy that we felt on the road, like becoming a touring band and the excitement of kind of segueing into that into the rock and roll lifestyle, you know, where just everything we did had to do with the band. And um, uh, yeah, you know, and like the artwork, I don't know, it just didn't really come across the way I'd hoped. You know, it wasn't as uh, well executed as I wanted. Slagle brought that up as well. And not that he was disappointed with it, but just that Miasma comes out and it doesn't look like a death metal album at all. I, he just... was freaked out about that at, at the time, I remember. I was just like, I don't know, man. Just, just check it out. <laughs> but I, I mean, they, they still must have had some faith in us because they let us do it. You know what I mean? They didn't like stick their hand into the pie, which I appreciate a lot. You know, they, I mean, they must have had faith in us right after that point because they, the record was like the launching point for us to be on Ozfest. You know what I mean? That was another moment that was just huge. You know what I mean? To know that the record was going to be coming out and that we were going to be on Ozfest promoting it, and that was just a bigger level of exposure than I had ever predicted for our band. I never thought we were commercial enough to be on an uh, outdoor festival like that. And this is before you saw Cannibal Corpse, you know, in the parking lot every summer. You know what I mean? Like, this is before that was, like, normalized, you know what I mean? So, yeah, it was a, it was a big curveball for us. It was something I'd never saw. Like, I remember people asking us if we were going to play Ozfest, and I was like, no, why would we ever do that? Like, you know, in what world are we going to play Ozfest? You know, like, that was, like, what I thought about it. So, you know, it was at that moment, that was a big change for, like, the trajectory of the band and kind of, yeah, I remember writing the material was really fun. I, I knew we were getting better and that we, like, it was the first time kind of seeing the payoff of tour, you know what I mean? Like in the chops and the songwriting and stuff and like what we've kind of accrued from touring with other bands and observing li bands live. And, you know, that's a big jump 
in knowledge compared to like a totally green local band. You know what I mean? Like we came back a little more seasoned. We'd done all kinds of touring. We've toured with, you know, we'd seen what to do, what not to do. You know, there was a lot more info that we'd retained and, you know, that we were applying into like coming back this time. And I just remember thinking like, musically, it was a lot more three-dimensional. Um, there was more variety. Uh, there was more depth. Maybe there were too many parts, like looking back now, like there's a lot of parts like kind of Frankenstein together. And, you know, we've kind of like pared down now in, you know, and when we, in terms of songwriting, but then, you know, it's like pretty happy to cram those parts in there. I don't know. We just kind of did what we wanted to do. It just felt like we were kind of free and we had people that liked what we were doing and they were waiting to see what we we're going to do. And that was just really energizing. You know what I mean? Like compared to so much uncertainty. I remember there was some, at the time you guys had been kind of weirdly lumped in with like the metal core scene at the time. And you were, you were trying to shed that. And there was some feeling that maybe like older death metal people weren't giving you guys a chance because you had this association, but younger kids didn't care about that so much. So maybe that wasn't, so what, can, can you talk about that a little bit? What, what was, for, what's your take? That was something that we, that we still, I don't know if I want to say struggle with, because I think ultimately it's played out to be advantageous to have so many different kinds of fans and to kind of have this genre fight following us in every comment section, you know? <laughs> yeah, at the time, like when we first came out, you know, I, I just wanted to be like the arms crossed, death metal band taken seriously like that. And that was it. You know, I had no aspirations of being on Ozfest or Warp Tour or all these other things that kind of being the sore thumb band is allowed. You know, I just wanted to be in the in the glass bowl of death metal and hit the glass ceiling and be all right with that. And that was it. You know, I didn't see all the potential here for this. You know, it was crazy. But like from the beginning, um, yeah, I feel like we've it's been an upward climb to kind of shake the true metal head guys with the you know the long hair, the patches, you know, the elitist dudes. I, and you know, I understand. I understand. Like the the, the band name has a the starting it. It sounds like it's very metalcore. And it was, you know, when we started out, we were just this metalcore band that worshiped prayer for cleansing, you know, the pre B team band band. And like, we like just did whatever they did basically and tried to, you know, and then, you know, we have us coming into popularity alongside Azalea dying and on earth who were staples of that metalcore movement. And, you know, we're our faces plastered on, on the same magazine next to them and we're in the same ads from Metal Blade as them. So, you know, that kind of helped lump us into that too, I think. You know, we didn't know that Deathcore was coming down the pipes and that we would be lumped in with that, like even more so, you know what I mean? And be even more annoyed. Having people that like don't know where we fit and, you know, like we, when I look at the crowd now, Black Dahlia fans, there's such a vast spread of of walks of the underground, you know, like uh, I see, I see the true metal dudes kind of growing in numbers over the years. And I think that as we've gotten more chops as a band too, that's kind of helped people, you know, helped usher people in. Yeah. Just with every album, we, 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 we um, beat back some of the naysayers that just had this preconceived notion of the band, you know, and that's just been like something we've always been dealing with pretty much. Yeah. Like I said, just the way that it's played out is like, I don't think we'd be here and be a popular band if we didn't have this kind of cross appeal, you know what I mean? And I remember taking the photos for Miasma and uh, when the label saw them, you know, there's, there's me drinking a beer in the front, I'm smiling. Uh, we got the guys in the back laughing. One of them is punching another guy in the face. 
and you know he's acting like he's hurt like this is shit you see all the time in photos now but then like the label was like what are these we're like these are our photos for <laughs> for the record and they're like i don't know about this you guys are like smiling and stuff and having a good time and we're like yeah that's just what we do i don't really know what to tell you here you know and we always saw it as like i mean the big four are our biggest influences you know like they were it when we were kids and they were like the metal that led us into metal and all that stuff and i've always seen us as kind of like an anthrax i guess you know what i mean like maybe not to the point where we're making joke songs necessarily and you know switching instruments and rapping just kind of wearing our comedic slant on our sleeve you know what i mean and like kind of you know like not being afraid to have fun with it not being afraid to smile up there and like what's the big deal you know like I'm not Nurgle. This isn't Behemoth. You know what I mean? Like I have fun up there and um, I don't know how to be any other way. You know, <laughs> like, it's just, it just comes out. I just exude. That's my happy place, you know, to be on stage and to be around metalheads and stuff. So really the height of it, like the, the most resistance we met, we were met with was when we played with King Diamond for sure. <laughs> uh, people were, you know, some people were, were hurling abuse some people were hurling spit. Some people were just really just wanting to fight. They just could not believe that, we would be on stage with King Diamond and, and supporting them and that we were asked to join the tour by King Diamond. That's the funniest thing when um, people in the crowd tell you like the other band on your bill sucks. You know what I mean? <laughs> like, and you're like, oh yeah, man, don't they? You know, like, <laughs> like, of course you had them out with you. Like, what the fuck? You know, it's just been something we've dealt with. It's something I'm just used to now. You know what I mean? And like kind of being that, elitist douchebag metalhead i kind of see both sides of it you know <laughs> like i see what i'm trying to sell to sell them the the long hair conglomerate you know i get it you know and i i i, I get like preconceived notions i get kind of wanting to keep your genre like safe from infiltrators <laughs> you know so it's it's interesting to be on both sides and it's kind of interesting to, to realize that your fans may like entirely different music than you you know the kind of the sense of humor aspect of the black dahlia murder is i remember you know early on maybe around the time of miasma this was like kind of a divisive thing but now it's kind of become your calling card i mean that's what you've done you've been around for so long now that people accept that this is part of your personality and, and it's kind of gone from well i don't know about this to oh yeah well if you're gonna go if i mean if by this point, if you're on board, you know that that's what you're getting. You're gonna, you're gonna, you guys might come out in Hawaiian shirts, or the gorilla might be running around, the the, the gorilla, you know, the guy in the gorilla suit, or whatever it might be. You know, all bets are off. You know, the other thing that was kind of not standard about this record is that you know you've got song titles like "Statutory Ape," uh, "I'm Charming," "Dave Goes to Hollywood." This is also not standard death metal fare in any way. Yeah, so I mean, that was obviously, I mean, a conscious decision that you guys made. Right. I mean, that's, that's always been my call, the, you know, the song titles, uh, the lyrics and stuff like that. And uh, it was definitely a bit of a curveball compared to what we did before and what we would kind of resume doing afterwards. You know, there still were songs that had the very typical Black Dahlia flair, such as a vulgar picture, which is, you know, your typical necrophilia jam. But there was a lot of personal stuff injected in there, um, stuff from relationships, stuff from like Touring life, like I said before, was a big kind of like um, impetus for writing what I wrote. And um, yeah, you know, like uh, the sarcastic sort of like leftover from metalcore um, song titles. You know, <laughs> like that's definitely those for sure. 
tongue-in-cheek sort of Dillinger escape plan, you know, blah, blah, blah. I guess that's sort of like that whole slant right there. I just remember thinking, like, I know that what we play is death metal. Like, here it is. You know, here's <laughs> like, like the label was scared, you know, because we were kind of shaking things up a little bit. But like, I kind of felt like it was our shot to call, you know what I mean? <laughs> and um, um, I don't know, you know, looking back, there are some things I would definitely change about the record. But also, you know, I just I just like it. You know, I, I like the energy. I like um you know, there's definitely some really personal stuff that I put on the table there, you know, um, about my life. And uh, it was cathartic in that way. But yeah, just like, I mean, that moment was just a, a huge transition, like the, that drop being seg- seg- you know, like synced up with OzFest. Yeah, I just, I just equate that album with like just a big jump in popularity and in eyes on the band. And, you know, that was like when we really started to break into press and like be in like tons of magazines and stuff. And, you know, it was a huge moment and definitely was different than what I'd predicted. And, you know, like, it's just, I don't know. I just, I never saw the band getting as big as it, as it is, or even was then, or, you know, like are having this kind of, I didn't think we were commercial enough or any of this kind of stuff. You know what I mean? I didn't really, it was a surprise. It was a lot you know, but it was really exciting. And, um, you know, we had some of our best tours ever uh, in the wake of that, you know, uh, Sounds of the Underground, where we were trapped basically outside all summer in a van was somehow the greatest time of my life. And if you put me through that now, I'd probably kill you. But <laughs> like, <laughs> but we just had a fucking blast. We were young. Our livers were very strong. And, you know, we were just living it up, man, just having a good time. Yeah, just I, it just really embodied that whole jump of being like, from a local band to a real band that like people cared about and people were excited for the next move of. And it was a lot to process. It was a lot to, but, but it was mostly exciting. You know, there's some, there's some choices I think we made a little too hastily maybe with the second record. And it's mostly those themes and those song names and stuff that like just hasn't aged that well. You know what I mean? I went back and revisited the videos for Statutory Ape and A Vulgar Picture which now have millions and millions of views on YouTube. Do you remember them making kind of an impact at the time? Um, yeah, this is kind of an interesting story. And I guess like this album does kind of, is where we really defined who we were to, you know, to the fans and, and those videos helped that, you know what I mean? And they kind of sprung from necessity. Like we are so, our budget was so little and, um, you know, you come into it as this dreamer, like, oh, we're going to do this and do this, and I'm going to ride a horse, and there's going to be a dragon with smog, you know, and like, and then you find out, like, all that shit is so expensive, and you realize nobody has ever made a good metal video. Like, (laughs) no one has had the budget to make a good metal video. It's just not that genre, you know what I mean? It's not a zillion-dollar genre, and so it's like everything is stacked against you from the get-go. So the when we were like, let's take the budget and just go get trashed and like record that. And like, that'll have to be entertaining. I mean, it's going to be better than us in a fucking warehouse. Right. But yeah, like that video and then the statutory ape, you know, we had the ape coming to the picture, which was really just like something we'd whipped up for the video. You know, like, I don't know, I'll throw a fucking red hat on him, you know, put a BDM shirt on him. You know, but we always knew that like, we weren't going to make joke songs. You know what I mean? Like at the end of the day, the music and the band and performing live is the most important thing. And if we're doing that well, then we're having a good time and you kind of feel, you know, 
you you get to be a part of that too because we're you know we're celebrating all the time um we've been very fortunate we've had such a great climb you know what i mean like we've been very very lucky we've made a lot of great decisions and so you know i'm we're just out here celebrating this amazing thing that we're lucky to be able to do so when i go on stage like it's it's hard to contain i can't help but like just let it out and just beam and you know you see my weird smile and um but I don't know. That's just it. I guess like Miasma was kind of like a celebration of that whole thing. You know what I mean? And like, like leaving your former life behind in this kind of like cocoon and coming out this weird guy, you know, on the other yeah. side that lives off gas station food. You know? <laughs> <laughs> but it was just so fucking exciting, man. I got to tell you, you know, like going into real studios and like leaving town and, you know, like, camping at somebody's house to like work on a record for for a long time you know and, and um our process has severely changed since then you know i kind of miss like being cooped up you know watching a record get born painstakingly bit by bit where now i just like check in every you know periodically i'm like how's it going i'm the singer cool whatever <laughs> <laughs> that's awesome um, oh, I want, so I want to go back to the album cover just for a second because I never got why did you guys choose? So the, the album cover is a, a nighttime photo of Las Vegas, I think it is. Uh, why did you guys choose that image for the cover of Miasma? Um, I don't know. I just thought it would kind of like embody the the Miasma, the shitstorm, the fucking whirlwind that like our world had become really um, and jumping into this being a full-time touring band and you know, the sex, drugs, and rock and roll and excess of it all. I was, you know, I was trying to capture that. It didn't quite happen as eloquently as I would have liked, but apparently it didn't totally bomb either, or we wouldn't be talking about this album right now. <clears throat> Super honored, I mean, to be a part of this list and to be representative of the label as a whole from all, you know, he's only going to pick 10 records to be in this box set. And that is a huge, huge uh, compliment, you know? So, eight, eight records. Eight. Oh, eight, man. Yeah. Even. Even slimmer chance yeah, of getting yeah. in there. So yeah. okay. So in conclusion, here, what is your favorite song on Miasma and why? The second track, "Flies." I don't know. I think it's just a great tune. It's it's not one that we've uh, played in a long time, unfortunately. But uh, I'd love to see it dusted off. I mean, so I, I mean, just I mean, I guess just as we've been talking about this, has anything else kind of come to your head that you feel like is worth mentioning about Miasma that, that people should know, or do we do we? I, I mean, I can't imagine we covered everything, but did we get close? It is what it is at this point. It's an imperfect beast in my eyes, but I think the fans have it in my head, have it in their head that I don't like the record, which is not true. I like everything that we've done or we wouldn't have done it. You know what I mean? That's kind of how I look at it. Yeah. You know, we have we didn't like do the cold lake move or anything. So, <laughs> but I guess if there was one record to kind of like put people off from our catalog, our catalog, maybe this is it. I don't know because it's such a like curveball of appearance and stuff like that. But, um, yeah, I'm proud of what it did for us. It definitely kept the ball rolling into the next era. And like I said, it just prepared us for tons of press and tons of um, recognition really at that time. So um, yeah, man, I'm just, I'm just happy. I, I'm, I'm happy we did it. I look back and um, yeah, it's not perfect, but I, but I like it, you know, um, I stand by, you know, what we did on it and uh, yeah, you know, I hope that people continue to enjoy it and, and get those, um, get those uh, sex drugs and rock and roll vibes out of it, you know, because that's kind of what we were going for, just a, a sort of celebration of that in a way, you know.
Yeah, I like it. Awesome. Thanks for doing that, man. I appreciate it. Ah, thanks for having me. Always a pleasure, man. Of course, you're the best. Yeah, always a pleasure. No, you are. Oh, you're the best. <laughs> <laughs>